0: modern
1: modern modern Modern.
0: we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration why don't you make that a double modern bar cart what's shaking cocktail fans welcome to episode 164 of the modern bar cart podcast i'm your host modern bar cart ceo eric koslick Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. Last episode, we talked about a whole bunch of cocktail ingredients that you may have never heard of. And as fate would have it, we're in for another one of those here today. That's right. We're talking about masticha, a Greek spirit with its own geographical designation. Yes, Uzo gets most of the credit in the Greek spirits space, but our guest, Effie Panagopoulos, is here to tell us why Mastika's day has come. Effie's Mastika, which is called Kleos, is the first woman-owned brand in Greece, and therefore in the world. And there's a ton of great stuff to dig into regarding the painstaking manner in which she developed her recipe, and the superfood status of the tree resin that gives the spirit its name, and unique flavor. As of the time of this recording, I've got a bottle coming my way, so we're going to try and do a live tasting and cocktail demo with it sometime during the week following this episode. So please keep an eye on our Facebook and Instagram feed so you can join us for that. And of course, if you'd like to pick up a bottle yourself so you can join in the fun, you can hit the show notes page for links and instructions on how to do that. But you know what? All this talk about bottles and tastings and cocktails is starting to make me a little thirsty, so why don't we take this as an opportunity for you to make yourself a drink? This episode's featured cocktail is a Kleos original, called Homer's Daiquiri. And no, we're not talking about the Simpson guy, I think we're talking about the uh, you know ancient poet guy. To make it, you'll need one part Kleos Mastiha, one part rum one part fresh lime juice, and one half part simple syrup. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good rigorous shake, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and enjoy. To me, it makes sense to keep things simple and go with one ounce as your constant with these measurements that I just described, but the nice thing is this recipe is scalable depending on your glassware. So if you get got a bigger glass or a smaller one, you can scale up or down and if you'd like to make more than one drink at a time when entertaining guests, you can easily do that math right in your head. There's a couple things that make Homer's Daiquiri the perfect drink to introduce yourself to Mastija, at least in my opinion. First, the Daiquiri, or more generally the sour format, is one of a few drink formats that smart imbibers use to judge the quality of a spirit or perhaps a new bar or bartender. Other popular formats used for this are, of course, the Old Fashioned, Manhattan, Martini, and Negroni. Simple drinks that demand proper technique and balance. Second, there's something about Clios Mastica as a product that makes it eminently flexible. It contains booze, intense aromatics, and even a little bit of sweetness. It's technically a liqueur, which means that there's a lot you can do to really dial in your perfect flavor profile when you're working with it. For example, the daiquiri isn't an equal parts cocktail and yet the recipe for homer's daiquiri is pretty much an equal parts formula until you get to that simple syrup essentially what effie has done here is preserve the taste balance of the daiquiri right the sweet to sour to boozy flavor by propping up the light sweetness of the mastica with a little simple syrup while still allowing the aromatics in her spirit to come through and surprise our palates of course Daiquiri purists are going to tell you that this isn't a true daiquiri, and in a sense they're right. But, you know, I bet there were also a few haters out there who kept asking Homer why he kept walking around reciting poetry about some dude named Odysseus. So in this debate, I think we should let history be the judge. So, now that you're all set up with your gateway drink into the Cleos universe, let's turn our attention back to the interview. Some of the topics we discuss in this lively conversation with bartender-turned-entrepreneur Effie Panagopoulos include how Effie's career took her from being an East Coast bartender to a West Coast spirits rep for some of the biggest brands in the world, and what she learned by watching the cocktail renaissance unfold in San Francisco. The way a chance bar visit in Greece transported her back to the flavors of her childhood, reigniting her passion for mastija and inspiring her to launch her own brand. Some of the ins and outs of designing a spirits formula, including debates about distillate bases, cleaning sticky stills, and navigating the Greek distilling industry. Why Masica has its own protected geographical designation, which takes us into some interesting geographical and geological rabbit holes pertaining to the Isle of Chios, where mastic resin is harvested. How the unique properties of this flavoring agent can also pull some impressive double duty in the health and wellness realm... Why Cleos has come to be called Bartender's Olive Oil, and much, much more. Listening to Effie's story, one thing that really struck me is the passion and discipline it requires to take a flavor from a far-off place, right? something you remember from childhood like an old friend, and bring it to life in the American spirits market. So for anyone out there pondering whether or not to become a spirits entrepreneur, this interview will either excite you, terrify you, or both. One last thing here, we drop the word organoleptic in this episode and I wanted to back up and make sure you know what we mean when we say that. Fittingly, this word has Greek origins, a fusion of the words organon, meaning organ, and leptikos, meaning disposed to take. Put those two root words together and we get a word that refers to our sensory organs ability to perceive, in the case of mastica, flavor and aroma qualities. This word also refers to potency of certain substances, right? And in so much as a substance potency allows our senses to take it up more easily. So when Effie and I are talking about precisely the best way to extract flavor from the mastic resin or the downstream effects of consuming the product, that's where you're going to hear the word organoleptic come into play. With that, please sit back and enjoy this fascinating conversation with everyone's favorite Greek spirits muse, Effie Panagopoulos. Effie, thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can you just kick us off here by introducing yourself to our listeners and uh, giving us a sense of who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, my name's Effie Panagopoulos. I am the first Greek woman in history to start a liquor brand. And that brand is called Kleos Mastika Spirit. It's a Greek liqueur made from a superfood called mastika, which is a sap from a tree that's indigenous to the Greek island of Chios. In fact, in the entire planet, it comes from trees that grow only in 24 villages in the southern part of the island of Chios.
0: That is very very specific, of course. Um, we're definitely going to dig a lot into the sort of the geography and the biology of that, that makes this little microcosm, I guess you might call it, possible. Uh, and of course, some of the interesting properties of Masticha. Uh But first, before we get into exactly what this this liqueur that you've created is, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into bartending and cocktails in the first place? And, and then maybe, uh, that, that'll bleed into the story of, uh, how you, how you decided to launch Cleos.
1: Sure. So like most people, um, what I studied in college has pretty much nothing to do with what I'm doing in my real life. Now I majored in French in college And I went to BC and I was working at J crew in college. And then I had the guy I went to my sophomore semi-formal with his older brother was the general manager of like the Boston college dive bar. It was called Mary Ann's AKA scary Ann's. And, um, they wanted a girl to come in and cocktail. Now, If you knew this bar, it's like the size of an airplane bathroom. (laughs) I mean, the bar was tiny. Uh, I kind of was like, why? Why the hell? But meanwhile, I'm like, okay, the place was packed. I could probably make some easy extra coin working here. So I went from cocktailing on dollar draft night to bartending on the Friday night. And I was the only girl, my four years at BC that, that worked at this bar. And then I ended up working at another bar around the corner called Rogie's as well. And oddly enough, there's a law in the state of Massachusetts that allows bars to have only uh, the cordials and beer. So there's like a beer and cordial license so this was one of those bars we had 25 beers on tap and then cordials so i had to get really creative making cocktails with cordials only this was like my you know first kind of real uh bartending gig in my in my like pre-20s actually because i worked there when i was like 19. so um i ended up going from there and working on the supplier side because Post-college, I worked for every brand under the sun doing tastings and promotions. So I was the Midori girl in Boston. I drove a green VW uh, Bug around the city that was Midori branded. Um, I worked on Kahlua, Carvasse, Maker's Mark, um, Grey Goose, and Jaeger back in those days. And then my older girlfriends who had these, you know, liquor rep jobs, I kind of was like, suffering working nine to five i worked uh, i taught high school spanish and then i worked for univision um doing copywriting i copy wrote commercials in spanish and i was still doing this stuff on the side and i just thought like i want that job you know their job's so easy all they do is hang out at bars you know um and so I ended up sending resumes for years. I mean, I was on the West Coast before I finally got a job uh, in the industry, and I got two offers. One was with Brown Foreman, one was with Bacardi in both in San Francisco. I liked the Bacardi portfolio better, so that was kind of like my first real market manager job in the industry, and that was in two thousand and four in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. which was a great place to kind of a great city to get your feet wet um when you are talking about the world of uh you know cocktail culture because at the time it was really only san francisco and new york that were really kind of progressive in terms of pushing classic cocktail culture forward and like new york was more classicist and then san francisco was kind of like the progressive um sister right mm-hmm. so i met people you know like Julio Bermejo when I was like 26 years old, you know, um, and so glad that it was the city where I kind of really got my feet uh, wet in in like deeper in into the into the business because you know, this is a city of real cocktail snobbery. Um, so I also kind of like learned a lot very, very quickly from some of the best bartenders, you know. Not only in the country, but arguably in the world, like people like Marco Dionysus. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. He worked at he helped open Smuggler's Cove. Um, he's a class act. This is a this is a bartender who will probably never sell out to work for for a brand. You know, he will stay behind the bar. Um, but he's the person that when I was working first first had to do a Bombay program. I walked into his bar, which was the Starlight Room and he asked me what were the two botanicals in sapphire that weren't in bombay original and um i got one right so imagine i got i got stumped by the bartender and i'm the brand rep um but rather than like be a snob and make me feel stupid he actually kind of you know took me on a cocktail journey of classic gin cocktails this was my first day on the job working for bacardi in san francisco just kind of goes to say like what kind of a city san francisco is i had my first french 75 i had my first bramble from him which to date is still like one of my top 10 cocktails like i i love 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 a bramble it's like an adult slushie, right totally Um, so uh oddly enough if you go on the cleo's website you'll see a lot of my cocktails are crushed ice cocktails so that sentiment stays alive today
0: that's awesome yeah um San Francisco really is a special city. We had a great interview about six or eight months back with my friend Virginia Miller, who's uh, she's based in San Francisco, and and you know just uh, especially in the year two thousand and four. I mean to to be a fly on the wall at that place at that time, and to to have a hand in building a cocktail culture that is still probably among the top, you know. Three cocktail cities in the U.S. to this day, um, you know that, that's a big deal. And, and I think, you know, it, it's easy to romanticize timing uh, because when you look back on timing, you're like, oh, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, but you know, th- there's a lot of work that goes on under the surface uh, that, that that makes that timing and that serendipity possible. So, um, why don't you take us? To the point in time when you decided that uh, Mastija and specifically, you know, a, a brand that you wanted to bring to market w- sounded like a good idea, or sounded like the thing you needed or wanted to do.
1: Well, I mean, if we take that that time in in San Francisco, right? So I'm in this city where I'm being exposed not only to a fantastic cocktail culture, but just like you know cocktail nerd after cocktail nerd, esoteric spirit after esoteric spirit. And I'm 100% Greek. My parents are off the boat. And I ended up getting recruited by Remy Quantro for Metaxa, which is the largest global Greek spirit brand. And the role was a national brand ambassador role. And um, I mean, I was, it's funny, I was like, stoked, but then also, kind of making fun of myself at the same time, because Metaxa is the stuff that like your grandfather or your dad was drinking. And, you know, I called my dad up and he's like, Oh, you have to get this job. You know, meanwhile, I'm kind of like, Oh, how cool it will be to work on a Greek brand. But like, you know, I don't love Metaxa. Right. So, um, I had to, uh, Took me a while to like fully, fully embrace the brand. The interview process itself was like six months, but this was the job that brought me back to Greece, you know, and kind of reignited the love affair with the old country. I had gone, I had spent most of my summers and entire summers as a kid in Greece. And then from the age of 16 till the age of 27, I had not gone back at all. So it was with this job that I returned back to Greece and it was summer of 2008, I was in Mykonos and at this crazy beach bar called Namos and everyone around me was doing shots of mastika. and it was all Americans. That was what really was the more intriguing part of it was that it was all tourists and they were all drinking this Greek thing. And I was with a music producer friend of mine, he gives me a shot and I'm like, I knew the flavor profile. I knew that flavor because when we're kids, we have masticha. As a spoon dessert, it's called Ipovrigio or vanilla. And it looks like fluff and you swirl it around in water and suck on it like a lollipop. And it slowly, slowly dissolves and gets like softer because it's really thick and tacky. And it gets softer in the water as you swirl it. Um, And so that was the flavor. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is like that stuff we had when we were kids. And then I'm thinking, and they make alcohol from this? you know, and like, why the hell isn't this in the United States? Like, I'm going to be the one to make this happen. And St. Germain had launched in 2007, you know, the year prior and kind of just like lit up like wildfire. At this point, I was, I'd left San Francisco. I was living in New York and, um, I literally thought to myself, this could be the next St. Germain. And, you know, funny enough, St. Germain, they were calling bartenders ketchup. And now the press is calling Cleo's bartenders olive oil because you can literally mix it with everything. Yeah. So um, from that Eureka moment in 2008 to the point that I launched was March of 2018. And I don't know if we have enough time on your podcast to talk about the slings and arrows that I had to take to get to the point of launching, but I'm sure we can scrape the surface a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I think... First of all, uh, I, I love the St. Germain detail because one, one thing that I find in common between Cleos and St. Germain is a beautiful bottle. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's something we can talk about maybe, maybe, um, in in a few moments here, but, um, why don't you take us through some of the decisions, uh, especially pertaining to, um, which distiller or facilities you selected to partner with, to actually get this produced because it is produced in Greece and we are in the U S. So, so talk, talk us through that.
1: So it legally has to be made in Greece. Mastika has, you know, regulations that some people don't know about. (laughs) Um, meaning there's been a couple of brands that have tried that to produce in the, that have tried to produce in the U S and still call themselves Mastika and the TTB has no idea about any regulations on the category. So they've kind of gotten away with it. But mastica legally, it is a PDO. It's a protected designation of origin ingredient. It has to be bottled, sourced in Greece to legally be called Mastica. And any product with authentic Heels Mastika has to have the stamp from the Heels Mastika Growers Association um, that verifies you're using, you know, real mastica. So I actually consulted for skinos, which is the largest brand out of Greece. So I helped him come over to the U.S. So it was when I was working on that brand that I kind of did the deeper dive on the category in terms of who's making Mastika, how are they making it? You know, and initially I was going to work with him and he was actually making it at the Metaxa uh, factory in, in Athens. Um, And I helped, we, we brought it into the Manhattan cocktail classic. I don't know how long you've been around. If you actually attended that, that was like, an attempt to do something like Tales of the Cocktail, not in New Orleans. So the Manhattan Cocktail Classic, I think had three years maybe, Mm -hmm. but it was when we did that, um, I was working with Willie Shine to make our cocktail for our bar. And he said to me, Effie, this juice is messed up. And I'm like, but what do you mean? And he said to me, it's just like, I I spec the same drink, two different bottles taste different. So I like rushed down to the bathroom at Astor where they were doing this and sure enough again, not something that a sophisticated palate would notice. Excuse me, that a non-sophisticated palate would notice, but I kind of was like, "Oh damn. Like definite differences, sweetness level, etc." So when I approached the owner at the time on that feedback, he was kind of like, "Oh, well, it's it's an agricultural product, you know. Kind of like it is what it is, right?" And so in my mind, I was kind of like, there's no way in hell that I'm going to hang my hat on a product that has consistency problems, particularly when my target was bartenders like this, you know? And I mean, let's be honest, right? If you are a restaurant, you are a bar, you make a grilled cheese, you make a cosmopolitan, whatever it is, you want that drink to taste the same every single time that your customer is coming to, to your uh, venue. Right. So, um, for financial reasons, I didn't move forward with the owner of Skinos and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to go at it on my own. And I initially actually just asked the distiller at Metaxa. I'm like, listen, are, did you guys have any exclusivity agreements? Cause they're the biggest distillery in Greece. And in my mind, I just thought like, I don't want to deal with the pardon my French, Shit show that is Greek distilleries because they're small, they're not met very many of them, you know, and there were not very many that were putting out high quality products. So I went to Metaxa first and we did about eight formulas there. And the only levers I had to play with were how much mastika and how much sugar. And they were using a neutral beat base. And so I, frankly, um, I wasn't super excited. You know, I picked a formula and I wasn't super excited. And I did focus group it. And believe it or not, uh, it was like bartenders like Jim Meehan, um, Dushan Zarek. These were some of the guys that I had tasting like the first formula iterations of Clio's. They really liked the very bone dry formulas. And then consumers hated the bone dry formulas. Um, Then what ended up happening was Skinos actually did make Metaxa sign an exclusivity agreement. So then I actually ended up forced to try to find another distillery. And I had kind of like a crisis of conscience because I was like, oh my God, where am I going to go? And where am I going to go that that can do high volume, you know? And um, I ended up, it ended up the whole thing ended up being a huge blessing in disguise because I found two other distilleries that not only uh, gave me superior formulas, um, but also were small batch production. So small stills versus industrial production. And so there was one distillery in Patra uh, called Hajalis and they make the original tendura, which is a classic Greek cinnamon liqueur. And their family originally was from Hio. So this was like great, great grandfather, grandfather, father, and son. And the son's now doing the distillates. Phenomenal family, but they had one baby still. And we're talking, this thing was like a 200 liter, right? And they kept yesing me to death on like my business plan and my quantities, which is something that Greeks typically will do. And I just like, I love these people, but I kind of was like, I'm so scared shitless, I'm going to end up having to buy them a still and come work on the production line myself, that I I wasn't ready to take that risk. And then really, I ended up getting connected to the Isidoro Sarbanitis distillery, which is on the island of Lesbos. They make Greece's number one ouzo, which is ouzo plomari. And when I went to the distillery, it was kind of this like, ah, moment. Like I walk in, they've got... 18 not one 18 baby stills 400 liters and they're just pumping out ouzo like practically five days a week because they do over a million cases of their ouzo and then they had two dedicated stills for Mastika. and um i'm the first greek woman in history to start a liquor brand the distiller there is the first greek female distiller so i kind of was like bingo this is phenomenal And um, she was the only distiller that I worked with that was open to my whims of trying different bases. And then she came up with the idea of this double distillation method that we use. And she uses two different forms of mastica. So we use the raw resin first, so we can kind of extract as many flavor and aroma compounds from the raw ingredient as possible. So there's barely any distilleries in Greece that are using the raw resin because you can imagine once you put that in the still, it sticks all over the still. In fact, the distiller at Metaxa told me that they ruined a pot still on their first tries of making mastica because they couldn't get, they didn't, you, you basically have to clean the still while it's still hot so that you can scrape out the mastica. And so we do a first distillation with the raw resin, and then we do a second distillation with the essential oil. So that is what solves the problem of the consistency issues. The second distillation with the essential oil rectifies the spirit, and that's the way that she can ensure it's the same batch to batch, regardless of the fact that that first distillation with the raw resin is going to have its. You know, variance and inconsistency according to the seasons, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so, you know, Cleo's now is the high, highest rated mastika globally, like five stars plus by Simon Difford. We just got 94 points in the Ultimate Spirits Challenge, finalist in the herbal liqueur category there. 90 points from Wine enthusiasts. So a lot of these writers, other than Simon Difford, these writers all are very new to the category. Um, so the fact that, you know, the spirit just on its own merits is getting really great ratings from spirits aficionados. And I'm really, really proud of that. I mean, I did all in. With all the distilleries I worked with, I did over 17 formulas and like countless focus groups just just because I kept testing. It's like, okay, let's test it. neat. Now test it in cocktails, Um, because the other challenge here was making a mastica good enough to just drink it on the rocks, but then having it be a workhorse for the bar, you know, because let's face it, American culture, we still really don't have an aperitif and a digestif drinking culture. So like St. Germain, which became huge in that vehicle, which is cocktails. I really needed Cleo's to kind of like be that workhorse behind the bar. And the thing that's different than St. Germain about Cleo's is that it's significantly lower in sugar content. So it kind of does that double duty where, like I said, you can drink it on the rocks, use it as a base, but then as a cocktail ingredient, Not only are we in a time where people are very sugar conscious, but, you know, you want the bartender to be able to balance the cocktail. If you have a cordial that's got too much sugar in it, then what are you left to do? Add acid, add bitter. It's easier when you just have a lower sugar cordial to start with. So that way, what I'm finding, you know, is people can do cocktails with Cleo's and St. Germain together. People can have layered cocktails with Cleos and Italicus together and a lot of your Amari, which Amari have a lot of sugar. People don't really know this because they taste bitter to the palate, but they have so much sugar because if they didn't, they would be like super medicinal. So that's what's kind of great about Cleos is that you can really layer flavors um, on top of it because it's kind of that, it's the very low end of the sugar spectrum for Cordial's.
0: Well, that's that's fascinating, and one of the things that occurs to me as as you're telling this story is, you're doing a lot of double duty, right? There's there's the the double distillation. Cleos uh, is sort of acting as this as, as both a, a a straight spirit that you can sip on the rocks or neat, and it's also in cocktails, um, and and so. You know, as, as you're describing a lot of these challenges that you overcame to to make the product, I, I really do appreciate the the amount of time that you took and the the iterative focus that you had because I I don't think that you would be able to present us with a product that is able to even remotely pull double duty without having kind of encountered all of these uh, little moments where you could have taken the easy route but chose not to. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Um... I'm kind of a masochist in, in, in a way, I guess. And I'm also a perfectionist because the reality is, is, you know, I got, again, I got my start off in San Francisco and then I ended up living in New York and my peers are the people that I wanted to embrace my brand. And so, you know, I just wanted to have a really stellar product. You know, I could have easily made a mastica with essential oil, a ton of sugar and a sugar beet spirit and called it a day and put it in a pretty bottle. But, you know, it's also not in my nature to, you know, do the cheap thing because like, I I mean, I try not to rip other brands apart, but let's face it, I've been in the industry for 20 years and like, I can't stand particularly now we've got this onslaught of celebrity owned brands, you know, I, I, 20 years ago, every startup brand wanted to be the next Meister. Now, every celebrity wants to be the next George Clooney. And mm-hmm. I, I just can't, I, I just don't understand. Michael Jordan, uh, Kate Hudson, Cameron Diaz, you've got tons of money. Why would you not hire people that are in the industry that could prevent you from embarrassing yourself, you know? You've got Cameron Diaz with the quote-unquote clean wine. Oh, I'm sorry. Is all other wine dirty then? Like, or Kate Hudson in her press release saying, oh, there were no other female vodkas. Oh, gee, you live in California. Did you ever meet Allison now, and Square One Organic Vodka, which is a phenomenal product and has been around for over 10 years? Maybe you should have invested your money in her rather than creating a brand that's going to be gone in two years from now. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I just, I I can't, I can't with people, people who actually have the money, which I did not, I did not. I have scraped together money, whether it was my own money, friends and family money. I have not raised any institutional money yet. I am, will be trying to, once I get out of COVID, you know, but the people that actually have the resources that don't take the time and do the diligence to actually put something out there that's stellar that's going to last, it it blows my mind, Mm -hmm. you know, I wanted to create a product that would be the first brand to really represent Greece in a modern way. And something that I want to live well beyond my lifetime, you know, and so taking a couple years to figure out the formula, why wouldn't I, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I mean it was pain, it was painful. It was painful, but it would have been more painful to put out a product that would have been mediocre.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. No, it makes complete sense. And can you remind me what uh what base you you did end up settling on instead of sugar beet?
1: Yeah, it was a neutral grain, mm-hmm. neutral grain spirit. Um I actually cane was pretty great as well for anyone that's like looking to create uh, a cordial, neutral cane spirit's pretty awesome. Um but then I didn't want people to think it was like Greek rum or uh, whatnot. And, And really the neutral grain spirit is, it's truly neutral. I mean, there's no aroma. What I found with the, I used, I tried beet, corn as well. You know, these are kind of the bulk spirits most widely available on the global market. And some of them are not truly neutral. Like there's some funk there. There's definitely some aromatics that kill some of the organoleptic qualities of the mastica. So we just needed a really kind of clean, clean. And again, I don't want to use this word now. I just made fun of it, but, um, a very neutral backbone so that the mastica could really shine. And that's the thing with Cleos is it is a crystal clean mastija distillate. Most of the distilleries in Greece that are making mastica are also making ouzo and anise is a miserable flavor and aroma to get out of the still. So the fact that we've got dedicated stills also ensures like you're not getting any of that kind of anise aroma on on the bouquet at all. It is just Mastica. And what's funny about that is people taste Cleo's and they, you know, they'll say like 20 things. You know, Paul Packelt's review was like as, asparagus, um, white asparagus. Um Green garden freshness. You know, I've had people say dill, celery, parsnips, turnips, ginger, aloe. So it's not a one note, which is fabulous that it's just one ingredient. And yet there's this kind of array of um, aromatic and flavor notes that people get just from this one ingredient. Super cool.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that we're on uh, flavor and aroma right now because I. You know, when when you were speaking about your first experience with masticha in in Greece, when um, you know you had that that memory that recalled you back to childhood, it seems like um, it seems like it's it's an incredibly unique flavor. So, could you take a few moments to walk us through? Uh, I guess the 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 flavor and then the substance itself, right? This is a this is a resin that comes from a, a very specific Uh, tree or shrub on the Isle of Heos. So I'd love if we could just talk all about like the the actual base ingredient itself and and some of the organoleptic properties that you were mentioning.
1: Sure. If you were to go down to the actual fields where the Mastika trees are, the smell is something akin to eucalyptus or sage. um, And the essential oil is actually quite mentholy. You know, if you were to take like a dab of essential oil, it's got this instantaneous uh, real like medicinal uh, quality and effect. So if I were to have made a bone dry mastica, that's what it would have been much closer to. So it would have been much more gin like. And the reality is, is mastic, as we know it and grow up with it in Greece is very confectionery because they take that raw ingredient and then mix it up with glycerin and a crap load of sugar. And the resulting flavor is something closer to like vanilla. And so Cleos is not that at all. So with Cleos, I wanted to be closer to the raw ingredient. And we all know sugar acts like a flavor amplifier, right? So um, really kind of hit that sweet spot between kind of floral, sweet, and then herbaceous. Like I like to say if St. Germain is at one extreme at floral and sweet, and then Chartreuse is at another extreme at herbaceous, Cleo's kind of plays right in the middle. It is very, very well balanced. But the number one tasting note on with Cleo's is actually going to be cucumber. Um, that's what I get the most often with blind tasting is cucumber sweet tea. And then cocktail bartenders say carrots all the time. Um, mm. and, then, and then, like I said, you've got that kind of array of aloe, ginger, celery, dill, mint. Um, when I first gave Cleos to Tony Abuganam, and I first gave Clios to um, Armando Rosario, who Armando is the kind of mixologist for Southern Wine and Spirits in Florida and, um, Tony's, you know, Vegas based to the original be- beverage program at the Bellagio. He's another one that's been around forever. They both actually commented on the acidity in Cleo's, which I found to be, um, quite interesting. So not masking the mastica with a ton of sugar, you kind of even get a little bit of acidity, which is why it's so great just drinking it on its own. So again, it's the type of thing you kind of got to, ha- you, you got to try it for yourself because it's so unique that it takes a while for you to get it into your DNA and be able to identify it of like, oh, oh, that's mastica, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah, and, and you just mentioned Chartreuse and, and a lot of what you're saying right now reminds me of the first time that I ever tasted chartreuse it was one of those moments where uh the only thing i can compare it to is is like seeing a new color with your tongue i didn't know that that flavor could could be that flavor before i tasted that that um liqueur and and it seems to me that Cleos is is in a similar position but instead of being in that position due to over 120 herbs and spices you're in that position due to one thing and a couple of smart decisions, right? There's the sugar. There's the first and second distillation that you were mentioning. All of these things play into the effect that you're able to achieve. Um, but I, I think a couple of things. You know, one, I I see those garden tasting notes being up upward trending these days. Uh, whereas maybe five years ago, you would have seen um, five and five and even 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 ten years ago, you would have seen t- flavor notes. Mostly associated with bourbons and and maybe well aged rums as trending upward, you would see vanillas, caramels, you 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 know sure. co coconuts, whatever those those flavor notes are trending upwards. I have never seen, and and maybe it's due to some of these amazing gins that are coming onto the market, but I've never seen so yeah. many garden flavors be so on trend for such an extended period of time. Uh, you've got pink gins that were really a craze about a year or two ago, and and now. We're finally starting to get to the point where there are non gin and and sometimes even non alcoholic, um, what you might call no aabv cocktail ingredients that are also with the seed lips of the world. Um, yep. So yeah, it's huge. It's on trend, uh, and I, I think that you know it's it's going to be really interesting to see that as you're able to kind of enter into more and more markets here in the U S just the, the type of feedback that you get from different types of consumers. Um, Can you, can you talk, I guess, a little bit about um, how people have been using Clio's in, in cocktails behind the bar to date and and maybe some of the, the more popular applications. I I know that you've got one with you right now.
1: Yeah. um, So the signature cocktail for Cleo's, the recipe's right on the bottle, is called the Cleopatra. Um, I like to joke the woman responsible for the downfall of the Roman Empire was Greek, and so is your new drink. <laughs> Cleopatra was actually of Greek descent, third generation descendant of Ptolemy, which is the same family as Alexander the Great, um, and her name is derivative of the word Cleos, and her name actually means glory of the country or glory of the father, and um, So that was actually one of the reasons that I selected the name Cleos was not only the meaning, but the fact that it could lend itself to cocktail names. So um, the Cleopatra is literally just three ingredients, Cleos, basil, and lemon. And it was created by a guy named Michael Menegos, who if Dale DeGroff is like the godfather of the New York cocktail family tree, Michael Menegos is that person for Greece and for Athens, uh, specifically. Um, he was global brand ambassador for, or like a kind of like a brand director for Havana club for a while. So imagine Cubans went and hired a Greek guy. This is how much street cred he had, um, you know, in his, in his heyday. And so Michael created that drink. And then i riffed ripped off that drink and I created one called the big in Japan, which is Cleo's shiso and lemon. So you can take that classic sour, which is just two ounces Cleo's, half ounce lemon, and literally do it with any of your favorite herbs, sage, rosemary, do it with cucumber. Um, uh, Thyme, like any of your favorite herbs in that sour is going to work phenomenally. And alternatively, you could use lime juice as well if you prefer lime, but that's kind of like a great place to start with whatever cocktail ingredient you're using is just add some acid and see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's your starting point. Now, with most of the recipes that I ended up, you know, kind of finagling with, with Cleo's, we just went one, one. So one ounce Cleo's, one ounce, pick your base spirit, pick your fruit, pick your citrus, pick your herb. So that's kind of a really easy uh, way to build a Clio's cocktail. And obviously that, that would be more of a sour style or cobbler style of a drink. And then you can obviously use it um, as a sub in classics. Like one of the drinks I have, it's called the Jean Cocteau. And it's a Corpse Reviver number two that I subbed Clio's in instead of the Absinthe. So it's, so it's gin, Clio's, Lillet. Cointreau, phenomenal drink, all equal parts. Absolutely delicious.
0: My God, that um, sounds amazing.
1: You know, and it's it's a little less off-putting than... I love absinthe, but literally only a quarter ounce. I can't really handle much more. Um, but most consumers kind of like... Eh, again, and I say most, meaning let's say 80% cannot really handle those intense flavors of uh absinthe even chartreuse you know can be a little off-putting um so cleo's is much much more approachable um when we're talking about bartenders i'm going to say the number one go-to for cleo's is gin like food and wine had approached me um a while back they were doing a piece it was like why must be in your bar cart now and they asked me for recipes and i was like done you know i reached out to bartenders around the country la texas boston new york chicago everybody gave me gin recipes. Um, So that's definitely the number one uh, go-to. And what's funny about that too is that like blind and during blind tastings, consumers sometimes will say it's like a sweet gin uh, when they try it blind. Um, And then for me, my next go-tos are going to be agave. Cleo's is phenomenal with tequila and mezcal, you know, and it's going to bring out more of those kind of grassy vegetal notes There's some minerality with Cleos as well that like just pairs brilliantly with agave. Um, One of the other drinks that's on my bottle that I actually created, I call the I Cleos Mio instead of I Vio's Mio. Um, And it's just a Tommy's margarita inverted. So it's two Cleos, one tequila, half lime, black pepper instead of salt. And it is like just a great variation on on your standard margarita. And it's going to be a little less sweet um, than what it would be using Cointreau.
0: That sounds amazing. And and going back to the comment that you made about minerality in, in the Clios, as I was thinking about the idea of using a sap or a resin as your primary flavoring agent in a distillate, one of the things that occurred to me was that it's almost like the tree is doing the first distillation for you because the sap is, you know, obviously derived from the tree after it absorbs water and nutrients and all that stuff from, from the actual local space. So it's, it's this really interesting type of terroir where the first distillation actually just goes through a plant. And, uh, I'm going to have to think about that for a little while because I don't think that that thought has never actually crossed my mind. So I don't really know how to, how to articulate it better than that. But I do really love the idea of minerality in a liqueur because I don't think it's something that we come across all that much. I mean, sometimes with the, um, more quinine style liqueurs, you could get something that looks and or walks and talks like minerality, but really it's just kind of quinine uh, but but outside of those types of spirits, uh, I, I, I really like minerality in something that has a touch of sweetness And I, I imagine that 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 paired with all the other um, kind of gardeny flavor aspects of mastica are are probably what makes it such a flexible tool behind the bar.
1: Yeah, I mean these islands, um the cycladic islands most of the greek islands sprouted a volcanic eruptions eons ago so you're talking like super mineral rich soil um in fact so the kind of bizarre thing about I and mean, besides 3000 years of of history and so many fun facts and anecdotes is that the trees grow only in the southern part of the island they don't grow like they planted them in the northern part of the island and the trees grow but they don't produce the same aromatic sap Hmm. so in the mustichocodia the scientific reason they say that the trees only grow in the southern part there's like three reasons one being the terroir and the position of these villages in relation to like this mountain range. Um, so the, the mountain range kind of shields the trees from wind and rain, and it's pretty dry and arid for the majority of the year there because the rain will ruin a whole harvest. It will wash it away. Right. Um, so there's that I've asked the growers association if they've done a mineral soil analysis and like, you know, they're not giving up the goods. Um, and they, will not grow trees in a in a greenhouse. Um, the cultivation of mustika has also been honored by UNESCO. It's on its list of intangible cultural world heritage. So this is something that is done 100% by hand. There is nothing automated about the process. There is it is t- totally organic, fair trade, sustainable. All of those things that the modern consumer is looking for, except that nobody really knows about this. I call it Greece's best kept secret. Um, so there's that, there's the terroir, and then there's, you know, what they attribute to eugenics. Over time, the ancient Heians were picking the best trees that gave them the most resin to repropagate. And you replant a tree from the branch. There is no seed. So you just cut a branch, stick it in the ground, five years that will mature to, you know, being a Mastika tree that you can cultivate. Um, a tree's matured around 20 And then they're old at around 100, right? But there are very, very old trees. Um, And the harvest is only from July until uh, September, July 15th till the end of September. So they get a break. They get to rejuvenate over the wintertime because basically the way they harvest the trees is by making little incisions on the tree so when they make those incisions, you're essentially wounding the tree, and its excreting of its resin is its healing mechanism. And the third reason would be the systematic cultivation over time. So this is something that's been passed down, you know, from family to family, generation to generation. There are no big companies that own trees. This is very much independent. The Heels Mustika Growers Association is about 3,000 families that have these trees uh, that harvest them to cultivate the sap 10 years ago, the average age of a Mastika farmer was 65 years old. So it was also very much a job done by the elderly. And it's now lowered to 55 years old because a lot of younger people have come back to the Island to kind of resurrect their family's tradition. There are trees that are laying around unclaimed, unharvested, you know, and this is something like when I first started on this journey, 2008, there were about 10 brands of mastika. There's now 50 brands. The majority of those brands are made with artificial mastika, which Turkey is notorious for creating artificial mastika. So, not everyone is using authentic heels mastika, but this has become, you know, a hot category, not only for liqueurs, mastika is used in skincare. It's also used in bandages. It's used in surgical thread because it helps with wound healing and skin regeneration. Chanel started using Mastika in their blue serum cream because it's also um, kind of used as an anti-aging ingredient. And it's used in toothpaste, mouthwash, and then some really weird shit. Pardon my French, is they use it in like varnishes, Mm. like paint varnishes. Um, so it's got, and then I'm forgetting the main use, which is, um, in, in uh, in pharma. So it is mastika kills H pylori, which is the bacteria that causes peptic ulcers, gastric cancer, and acid reflux. So it is in the EU, it's officially recognized as an herbal medicine. So there are pharma companies that put mastica in pills for people who have GI problems. Mm-hmm. So everything gastrointestinal Mastic is a natural remedy for Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. So it's got this wide myriad of, of uses outside of uh, the world of spirits. And then of course it's also used as a spice in culinary. You, you can cook with mm-hmm. You can make sweets with mastic. Ice cream is going to be one of the most common things. Um, the Alinea cookbook has two dishes with mastic in it in an interview that um Grant, and I would never pronounce his last name right. Grant Akats from uh, Alinea in Chicago did an interview with Gourmet Magazine, RIP. In 2008, they asked him, what's the world's most underused spice? And he said, mastiga. So, you know, again, when I first kind of rediscovered this as an adult, I kind of was like, Wow you know, I'm going to make this cool again. <laughs> and um, it's already happening. So it's um, it's very kind of gratifying to see. And, you know, I really kind of hope to take this esoteric Greek thing and, and make it a little more mainstream. Not Tito's mainstream, but a little more mainstream.
0: Right, right. Well, um, it, it must be gratifying to see that, especially you know, in the you know, going from going from ten to fifty brands, and and uh, just being part of that, I'm sure is is uh, it's exciting to feel the momentum. And uh, going back to the GI benefits, I think that's a great excuse for us to uh, stick it in our bellies, you know. So uh, that's uh, I I love hearing about all the the various uses for mastica. And, uh, I'm excited to, to be able to try it myself. Um, so by the time, by the time this interview airs, uh, we'll be able to, to do some cocktails with it. I will have my bottle and, uh, I'm excited to, to play around and, uh, we'll definitely be featuring some of those cocktails on our Instagram feed. So for anybody who's listening, head over to Instagram at modern bar Cart, to check those out. So Effie, uh. I think the logical place to go from here would be to just uh, ask if um, before we jump into lightning round, if there's anything else you'd like to share um, or any updates about where Cleos is currently available, like how to get our hands on it, and and where maybe you have plans to expand to, uh, as you as you said, once once the COVID is done pummeling us.
1: Hmm. Um. Yeah. So it's available Massachusetts, New York, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. Um. And then. Also in Florida, I haven't officially launched with a distributor, but it is available in Florida and you can buy it online in Florida. My website's got a where to buy link. Um, I'm shipping to about 16 states in total through various retailers Um, in New York, which I'm sure you've got a big listener base. Wine.com sells it in New York. So really easy to get. Um, And then the plan for 2021 is going to be finally opening up California, Illinois, and um, DC, Maryland as well. Connecticut as well. And then I've got a spattering of control states that have started ordering it. Alabama started ordering Clios, a woman named Linnell who's been um, just great about bringing craft brands into that state. Uh, Also North Carolina via some greek women that really wanted to get cleos into their market got the state to um you know uh list it uh and then i'm also presenting to canada the liquor control board of ontario um looking to officially launch wide in greece it's also available in london and in cyprus uh so yeah that that covers that covers most of it that's fantastic and then of course of course i plan to take over the world but not until we can get out of this covid mess
0: yeah i i feel you on that front uh so we'll have links to all those uh places on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast for this episode uh so you can go ahead and check out effie's website i got mine from like greek spirits.com or something like that um so there's a lot a lot of different options and. Shipping restrictions have certainly been eased a little bit, but uh, you know, due to the fact that there's 50 states and we all like to have our own freaking rules, there's there's not just one, unfortunately, uh, a source for all this. So uh, please head over there, check out, see if Cleos is available in your jurisdiction, and um, we will have some ideas for you to start playing around with it. So with that, uh, how about a couple of lightning round questions?
1: Sure. I would also say just follow at drink. Cleos on Instagram, I answer all those messages as well. So I mean, I'm literally giving people cocktail recipes, making them recipes for their parties. So whatever you need, they can message me directly.
0: That is awesome. I love the hands-on approach. So getting into lightning round questions, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's something you've most recently fallen in love with?
1: Um, I'm going to go with a Mezcal Cleos 50-50. Ooh, with a grapefruit wedge, pink grapefruit wedge.
0: Hmm, what kind of mezcal? Any, any? Do you do you have a particular uh, brand or agave varietal that you gravitate toward?
1: I love, I love them all, but uh, I don't know. I guess I used to drink a decent amount of Chichicapa, Delma Um I like my friends over at El Silencio as well. Um god there's so many brands this is it's too hard. I know.
0: I love that Chichi Cappa.
1: I'm not a loyalist when it comes to mezcal. I'll be honest, like it's one of those like because there's so many new ones coming in, I'm I'll just always try kind of what's the latest and greatest, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. A 50/50 Cleo's and mezcal. I love it. Uh if you personally were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why?
1: Oof. This is tough. I don't know. I'm going to say Angostura bitters because it's it's essential. I love it.
0: I love it. Uh, All right. Here's the Widowmaker. Cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink together? Just kind of paint us a picture.
1: Socrates. In the Agora, the ancient Agora in Athens. And it would be my Cleos Mezcal (laughs) 50-50. And I would just want to hear him pontificate on philosophy. And yeah, that's it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. You certainly, you certainly want to choose your beverage with him uh, carefully based on the, the alleged manner of his death. I think he's, yeah. yeah. Um, that's fantastic. Socrates. I think that, I think you have officially given the oldest uh, the oldest answer in the history of the podcast with that one. So congrats. Um, next up. What is a common or traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why?
1: What have I not tried yet? Uh, this is kind of embarrassing. I have not tried Suze on its own. Um, and I think because some people compare it to Clio's sometimes. So I don't know. I guess I've just had an aversion to, to trying it.
0: Yeah, I think that 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 falls into that category of like slightly, maybe minerally liqueurs, but it it gets the mineralness from the, instead of being like a quinine minerality, it's a gentian minerality. Um, And uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a little tough on its own. And um, I I definitely prefer it with an acid and some sort of clear spirit mixed in a cocktail. But yeah. but yeah, Suze. Suze is I've an,
1: had it in a cocktail. Mm-hmm. To be clear, I've had it in a cocktail. I've just never had it by itself.
0: Yeah, interesting. Um, if that, if if you don't gravitate toward that one, there's another brand called Sailor's Aperitif, which is another Genshin Aperitif. Mm-hmm. It, it might just have a slight, it yeah. has a slightly different profile. So, interesting. Yeah, Suze. Well, one,
1: of, one of my big accounts. One of my big accounts in Boston does um, a Greek Negroni, and it's with. Um, Cleos as the base, uh, Campari and sailors.
0: Mm, wow, that's that sounds really really good, and I imagine that the Cleos does a lot of work to balance out those two bitter ingredients, because that instead yeah. of a gin and a bitter, that's a bitter and a bitter with the Cleos, right? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Last question here before we just give you one more chance to spit out those social media handles, but uh, do you have any unusual or controversial views or beliefs in the spirits and cocktail space?
1: Well, I'm going to say that, you know, we've got kind of... Um, so we've I already talked about this kind of onslaught of celebrity-owned brands. You know, I would say there's definitely... Um, A lot of brands that are created by females now as well are a lot more coming to the forefront. And I'm just going to say that just because it's female owned doesn't mean it's good. Um, So same with the celebrities, you know, um, again, I'm all about supporting, you know, uh, female owned brands. But, you know, when you're making it pink and it's um, just cheesy and not well thought out, like, sorry, but you're not getting my my vote.
0: No, that's fair. And I I think we're at a really important juncture for quality right now in, in the world, because we're dealing with this pandemic, everything's being disrupted. And I I think this is a a time where I think various types of quality might be prone towards slipping through the cracks. So, uh, I, I, appreciate that opinion. And, um, you know, I, I hope that, um, if, you, if anyone out there is listening, uh, especially to the story of, of entrepreneurship in this episode, if you're thinking about starting a brand, um, you know, just kind of goes to show how important quality is at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I always say you should never start a product because you and your friends like it, you know a lot of people come to market without ever having done a focus group, without ever really having a solid idea of who their target consumer is, or having tested their product within that target consumer base. You know, it's ludicrous. Uh, It's risky. I mean, starting a business is so risky in itself. You want to eliminate the risk as much as possible. So doing your diligence and actually doing focus groups is super important, you know? And it's one of those things that people think like, oh, only the big companies do focus groups. Like, no, you can assemble a group of 20 to 40 people that you do not know. I mean, and you, you know, either pay them a small stipend um, or have it be kind of friends of friends. So you don't necessarily know these people. Don't be in the same room as them. Have someone else moderate it for you. But you have to do this. You have to do this. I'm 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 shocked at how many people bring a product to market without having tested it.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, uh, ten years of testing and iteration later, we have Cleos here ready to take the world by storm. So, Effie, uh, thanks so much for being with us today. And one more time, just give us your handle and uh, your, your your various social media handles and and um, and your website, please.
1: Yeah. So it's um, really easy. Drinkcleos.com. com. drink and then K-L-E-O-S. And then the Instagram is the same at drinkcleos.
0: Beautiful. We will have all this over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. You can hit the show notes page for all these links and more. And Effie, thanks once again for being on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. This was so much fun.
0: This episode was produced by Edie Frederick, with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, delicious mastija, courtesy of Effie Panagopoulos and Cleos, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.